Have you ever wondered about the devil and the powers of darkness? Missionaries who tell you about dramatic supernatural events they witness somewhere in the majority world, somewhere in Africa, Asia, or Latin America. Why do Christians in the Southern Hemisphere always seem to have experiences that we could only dream of or imagine? Why do they get all the supernatural action? Why is the devil so interested in their lives and in their cultures? Have you wondered that? Because if you have, you may be making false assumptions here. If you are a Christian, I can promise you that you are caught up in full-on vicious spiritual warfare. The devil, Satan, is alive and well in North America. Forget those scholars who tell us that the devil has been demythologized, that all those accounts in the Old and New Testament are pre-scientific ancient myths. The joke's on them, and the joke's on many of us believers who are sleepwalking through life. We have no clue what is happening around us and what is happening within our souls. So this morning, I want to lay out several ways in which the devil and the powers of darkness are trying to draw you away from Jesus. They want to destroy your faith. Um, This will be a case study in spiritual warfare, or if you like, demonology. So buckle up. I should say up front that um, other scholars have informed some of what I'll be saying, especially the insightful book by David Cetron and Chris Kiesling, Spiritual Formation in Emerging Adulthood, a Practical Theology for College and Young Adult Ministry. I should also confess that I've learned a lot from sociologists. Don't tell Dr. Matt Voss. I'll deny it anyway. So here's what some of the evidence shows. One of the biggest challenges for Christian college students is compartmentalizing their lives. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You're taking all these classes, you're learning all this rich truth about God's world and your place in it. Intellectually, you're exposed to multiple disciplines, all brought under the lordship of Christ. You learn to think critically and faithfully. So that's in the classroom when you're doing your schoolwork. But then in the rest of your lives, it's a different game entirely. Personal morality, social ethics, the way you think about yourself, the things you really care about deep down, often these things don't have much to do with what you're learning in your classes. So it's a dichotomy. It's two different worlds. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You've studied it in class. You can wax eloquently about it, right? We're not just brains on a stick. We need to put hands and feet to what we know. Life and doctrine go together, etc. You know the problem, yet it haunts you. It is subtle. It is pervasive. And perhaps it is demonic. Let me get more specific. 
with four areas that I think affect Covenant College students, some of you more than others. And please don't shoot me. I'm just, I'm just an errand boy, a lowly messenger from Sanderson. All right. <laughs> All right, first off, moral individualism. Moral individualism. Oh, no, Medwamey, not individualism again. We hear this word so often. It's like a never-ending cliche that curmudgeons like you beat us over the head with. Why didn't they tell us about Dante's 10th circle of hell? The souls of college students forced to listen to the word individualism <laughs> over and over and over again. I feel your pain. I feel your pain, but don't get hung up on the actual word, right? What does it look and feel like? Think about the maxims the culture tells you to live by. Be true to yourself. You choose what you want to do, how you want to live your life. What matters most is what feels right to you. Your own intuitions tell you what is right and wrong. So as one scholar writes, many college students, quote, believe that they know what is right and wrong by attending to the subjective feelings or intuitions that they sense within themselves. That's why some of you get yourselves into these situations that leave RDs and the chapel office scratching their heads. You just don't care about contract and student development. Those are external authorities. You live by what your own feelings tell you is right. And now this should ring a bell. Uh, Dr. Jay Green talked about all this the first time you heard him in Christian Mind in his lecture on tradition. So this individualism also helps explain why more, more and more of you are cheating on tests. You don't care about an objective, external, moral standard that says plagiarism is absolutely wrong. Your individualism has led you to a consequentialist ethic. As long as I'm not hurting anyone, as long as no one knows what I'm doing, it's okay. This way I can do well on the assignment. The ends justify the means, done. What are you doing, man? You're sinning against the living God. Oh, well, he's going to forgive me anyways. No, I'm done, you say. We'll come back to that. Now, listen, I know I'm overgeneralizing. All students are not like this. In fact, most students on this campus aren't like this. But you know what's interesting? There is a sense in which all of you are steeped in this thing called moral individualism. The unspoken rule is that you're not allowed to judge another student. I can't judge you, you can't judge me. If you see a fellow student breaking contract or doing something morally unwise, you're not comfortable speaking out. No one wants to be the snitch, right? In fact, you don't just feel uncomfortable speaking out, you think it's wrong to do so, it's immoral. You have to respect personal boundaries. You can't just tell a fellow student how they should live. In other words, morality is private. You've got your issues, I've got my issues. You mind your space, I'll mind my space. Thank you very much. That's moral individualism. 
for your grandparents, morality was inscribed into tradition, into the culture. It was very evident, and it shaped how one understood the world. So I don't want to romanticize the past, but at least then, it was easier to experience morality as objective fact that was plausible for them. Things are radically different now. Personal choice is the big kahuna. There is no longer a communal moral ethos or one that is Christian in any meaningful sense. And so the burden is placed on you. It's placed on you to navigate the complexities of this world, to adjudicate all these conflicting voices that are bombarding you 24-7, often in subliminal ways that you are not even aware of. In the end, what wins out is me, myself, and I. I'm going to do what feels right to me. The second area is antinomianism. Literally, you are against the law. The way you roll, moral law is unnecessary. You trusted Christ for salvation. You have been justified. You have been redeemed. You're not bound to the law. Jesus freed you from it. Sin is inevitable, right? So there's no need to resist it. The spirit of antinomianism works itself out in strange ways. For example, some of you think the lives of Christians will not be very different from non-Christians. In your mind, how we live our lives, what we do for fun, the things we love and care about, we're no different from unbelievers. Internally, we have different attitudes, perhaps, but that doesn't really make a difference on the outside. What matters is that Jesus loves me. Your very confidence that God has forgiven you about, God has forgiven you, but you're not worried about the evil of sin. Sinning against God or the consequences of sin are no big deal. There's not much at stake. And then when you start feeling bad about it, when your internal emotions get dark and gloomy, and you feel a little guilt, a little shame, you then find sophisticated ways of narrating your internal emotional life so that those negative feelings are wrong. You find a way to domesticate them so that you can hide yourself from the spiritual reality that's staring you in the face. Parenthetically, is it possible that those negative feelings are sometimes the work of the Spirit convicting you of sin? So what I've been describing, that's antinomianism. And in response, we need to say, and we need to say very clearly, obeying God's word is not legalism. That is a lie from the devil. Striving to obey the moral law, being serious about obedience, unflinching allegiance to the word of God, that is not legalism. You love to cite Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Alleluia. Alleluia, indeed. But the broader context of Romans 8, chapter, Romans chapter 8, it emphasizes the importance of fleeing sin, the importance of obedience. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, 
you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For most of you, nine times out of ten, shouting legalism is a total cop-out. You're just dancing to the antinomian song. So just to be clear, legalism is a problem. I don't deny that. My point is that sometimes when we complain about legalism, it's just a convenient way to cover up our sin. So yes, Scripture warns against legalism. And at a place like Covenant College, there are things we should be mindful of as it relates to legalism. Having campus rules to organize our lives as a community, it's important, but it's not enough, is it? Rules don't change your character. And what, you, what do you do when you're in a situation where the rules don't apply? What's going to guide you then? So absolutely, yes, we need character formation. Yes, we need spiritual formation. We'll get to that. The point I'm trying to emphasize here is that obedience to the word is itself part of character formation. And that definitely is not legalism. The third area that affects your lives is doctrinal apathy. So over the past few years, I've been informally polling juniors and seniors about their stance on theological questions, uh, especially on issues that put us out of step with our culture. And you've consistently told me about a tension that you feel. On the one hand, you desire to have moral integrity, to be serious about your faith. On the other hand, another side of you worries that most theological issues are not worth having firm convictions about. You've taken all these classes at Covenant, and they've sensitized you to the complexity of it all, the complexity of the doctrinal divisions among Christians, the complexity of systemic injustices in the world. I mean, the sheer complexity of it all. And at some point, it becomes too overwhelming, and you end up jaded where it seems like there's an inevitable futility to it all. Why get uptight or fussy about all these things when we know there are all these opinions and debates out there? So a lot of research has been done on this phenomenon, and students on other Christian college campuses report the same tension. The educational uh, psychologist William Perry argued that when students first arrive on campus, you see the world in black and white, very few shades of gray. You're zealous, you have strong convictions that you receive from authority figures in your life, maybe your parents or your pastor growing up. Then you start taking classes, and you realize, man, there are all these people who disagree with each other. Your parents and your professors have different views. According to Perry, all of this creates a sense of multiplicity, where you now think that moral absolutes are the exception and not the rule. All the authority figures are relative. After all, they disagree with each other. Then, for some of you, you move from multiplicity to relativism. Truth is relative, and we need to evaluate it based on the evidence. So you see the shift. 
You go from moral absolutism to multiplicity to relativism. And the whole experience is discombobulating for students. And so by the time you're a junior or senior, you end up in this scary place of doctrinal apathy. For the record, I don't believe there's something intrinsically defective about a Christian liberal arts education. I could have chosen to give a chapel talk on the glories of Covenant College, the deeply formative experiences that students have over their four years here, the ways in which you are shaped to grow and to mature as thinkers, as Christians. I could have talked at length about why this institution puts Ivy League schools to shame. We are the best kept secret of the PCA. We are the Scots. We rule the world. (laughs) But that's not what we're talking about today, alas. We're talking about spiritual warfare. And what I was saying is that some of you find yourselves stuck in the complexity, and it's overwhelming. As faculty, that's something we understand, and we work hard to address in our classes. But it's a tension, isn't it? Um, and this tension reminds me of a well-known quote. On the near side of complexity is simplistic. On the far side of complexity is simple. Let me repeat that. On the near side of complexity is simplistic. On the far side of complexity is simple. That's the issue. As faculty, we want to help you discern the problems with simplistic ways of understanding the world. We want to take you into the complexity, but we don't want to leave you there. We want to take you into that complexity and then through it, to the other side. We try to take you into the, comp- the complex debates and then through all that to the pure simplicity of the Christian view of things. Um, that's what we're trying to do. That brings me to the fourth area, growing pains. All right, so let's just be real. Emerging adulthood is a spiritually challenging season of life. Right, decades ago, we didn't have to deal with many of the challenges and the pressures that you face today on a daily basis. Uh, Chris Kiesling describes um, these developments in a helpful article titled, A Long Adolescence in a Lame Direction. And here's what he says. In the past, there were clear social markers for what it meant to become an adult. Culturally, everyone understood the steps you had to go through. Roughly speaking, you had to get an education, which gave you a career, you then got married, and then you raised a family. There you have it, life as an adult. And the thing was, you didn't have to consciously, deliberatively figure things out. You just followed these steps. And the bigger meaning of your life, the meaning behind it all, that came from family, that came from community. You were naturally socialized into all of that. So if that was the past, what about emerging adults today? What does the research show? Apparently, many of you don't understand adulthood as your parents did. 
it's not about making lifelong commitments such as marriage or raising kids or taking on family roles. No, becoming an adult is about constructing your inner self. It's about developing the self. Social roles used to be predefined. Now, the pressure is on your own shoulders to figure out who you are and who you are becoming. You have so much freedom. Who are you shaping yourself to be? The guiding norms are no longer there. So you keep having to figure out who you are in light of, I don't know, in light of media, in light of culture, in light of Beyonce. And the pressure is daunting. What if you make a mistake? What if you make the wrong choice? I'm going to quote from that article. If social markers are no longer sequenced such that attaining one leads towards the next, there is a consequent need to keep thinking ahead in regard to how one might navigate the life course. Questions of identity that in previous eras were addressed and resolved decisively in adolescence now become prolonged adult dilemmas. Important to recognize is that the primary emotion haunting contemporaries in their struggle toward attaining psychological adult, the primary emotion is not that of guilt, but anxiety, end quote. Anxiety. Are we surprised that the Priesthood Center is filled to capacity every semester? So let me recap. I've mentioned four areas that loom large in your lives as students. Moral individualism, antinomianism, doctrinal apathy, and growing pains. I could go on in this vein with more to add to the list and my talk would become even more depressing than it already is. But I hope you see the challenge you face. And this, my friends, is a dimension of spiritual warfare. It's pure and simple. Don't you dare tell me that it's only Africans who experience demonic activity. Now look, I believe in demonic possession and exorcism. It's in the Bible. But that's low-hanging fruit, right? That's real easy stuff. Did you, like, really, did you think that the devil is a one-trick pony? Right? That, the only, that he only has one way to attack his people, possessing them. Don't be naive, right? John's gospel tells us that Satan is the prince of this world. And Paul says he is the God of this age. In Ephesians 6.12, we read that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So God allows the devil and the powers of darkness to have considerable influence over society. And that's why in John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It wasn't just a platitude. Jesus meant that. So naturalism, naturalism comes in many shapes and sizes. 
And you all know the kind of naturalism where people deny God's existence or what he is doing in the world. And they try to redescribe the world in narrowly empirical and reductionist ways. But naturalism also applies when people deny what the powers of darkness are doing in the world. Respectfully, I think, there are many naturalists of that kind in American evangelicalism. I'm not saying we should obsess about the enemy, right? Even in the Bible, Satan and his minions are a subplot. They're not the main attraction. They're more to the periphery of the biblical story. The main plot is the triune God and how he is redeeming his people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And besides, you remember what Martin Luther said? The devil is God's devil, right? He can't do anything outside the sovereign permission of the Lord. Still, I urge you, stop. Stop sleepwalking through life, okay? Open your eyes wide. The devil does not want you to flourish. He is doing anything and everything to work against your good. He's been at this game a long, long time. So, where do we go from here? Many good people have thought long and hard about these issues. Uh, the literature on Christian emerging adults is massive. My colleagues on faculty all the time are addressing these issues pedagogically in the classroom, in advising, and in mentoring relationships with you. And most importantly, every semester, Brad Boyles, Grant Lowe, Stephanie Fermenti, and their staff, they're developing programming with exactly these issues in mind. All I'm doing today is giving a footnote to the excellent work that is already happening throughout this campus. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Yummy, yummy, a college student. He doesn't relent. It's a continual onslaught, finding ingenious ways to frustrate the work of the gospel. This conversation we're having right now, it's ongoing at Covenant. It's ongoing wherever good Christian men and women are trying to follow Christ in a wicked generation. One thing is clear. The intellectual training that you all are receiving in your courses is deeply important. You need it. You desperately need it. But what we've also seen is that there are deeper dispositional forces that are pulling you in the opposite direction. There are ingrained habits and instincts that have been formed in you long before you arrive on this campus. Someone said that we may be developing students who can talk the Christian mind and yet live the mind of the world. In the four years that you're here, with God's help, we hope to encourage you toward new and virtuous dispositions along the grain of the gospel, dispositions that will last long, long after you've graduated, and that is to participate in spiritual warfare. In light of that, what should you be doing defensively and offensively? 
What are the spiritual disciplines? What are the practices that will keep you moving in the right direction? I am a holy man, and I teach on a holy mountain. So I give you not six, not eight, but seven points. <laughs> Number one, prayer and Bible reading. You all know this, right? It feels cliche, but don't get it twisted. It is absolutely essential. To be praying is to be fully human. Because when we're praying, we are depending on God. Let's not be the kind of Christians that are all about the Bible, but have no prayer life. At the same time, take your Bible seriously. And I'm not just talking about in assignments. I mean in your devotional life. Feed on Christ through the scriptures. Let the word of God shape your deepest assumptions about reality. I know there will be ups and downs. Right? We're fickle. We're inconsistent. Life happens. But let this be your default mode always. Number two, be part of a local church. Never, never, never abandon the local church. I tell my doctrine students all the time, the church is full of weird, eccentric, annoying people. You're one of them, right? But it's in the church where we experience the means of grace. It's in the church where we fellowship with our dear brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in the church where we sit under the preaching and the ministry of God's word. But don't just go to church. Participate in the life of the church. Participate in the ministry of the church. That will keep you grounded. Teach Sunday school. Serve in the nursery. Join mercy ministry groups. Those kinds of things will always keep you rooted in what's most important. The gospel, prayer, evangelism, ministry, and so on. Number three, be in community. So when I say community, I'm thinking of something very specific. I'm thinking of friendships and mentors. Friendships and mentors. In terms of friendships, don't be a lemming. Please, don't be a lemming following all the other clowns who live unwisely or foolishly, right? Don't just do what everyone else does. Be a Christian with some backbone, right? You know the students I'm talking about, those who aren't serious about God. Don't let them be your closest friends. I'm serious. Yes, be friends with everyone, but let your closest friends be students who are trying to be godly, students who have their heads on straight, biblically speaking, Students who are invested in growing, becoming more like Christ. Let those be your closest friends. I would also encourage you to find an older mentor while you're a student. Someone much older than you. Someone wise. Someone in whom you see Christ shining forth. This might be someone in your local church. Someone on staff here. Um, ask that person if they would be willing to mentor you. There's, gonna, there's a person who's not beholden to the ephemeral things that beguile your generation. They will be able to speak truth into your life, honestly but gently, in the context of personal relationship. A voice of wisdom and maturity to counter 
the diabolical voices that whisper in your ear every day through media and culture. Number four, serving others. So this is in addition to what I've said about the church. I advise you to find ways to serve in the broader community. So I'm teaching global theology this semester, and one of my students, Meredith Lee, she wrote this comment for one of her assignments. I quote, as I look around at Covenant College students, myself included, I often see a love of self. Our schedules revolve around what we want, around our classes, around our friends, and around our future. Granted, college is a unique time of focusing on improving one's mind. However, I polled several people on campus, and only one, only one had done regular service work since Mark 1045, their freshman year. Many people admitted to spending up to six hours a day on various screens, phones, computers, and TVs when not doing homework, end quote. Not hearing any cheers. Her comment, her comment fits what the research shows, right? On the one hand, you college students express zeal for social justice, serving the poor, fighting against racial inequity, promoting economic development. You fight for that, right? On the other hand, studies suggest that much of this is empty rhetoric with little practical impact. I'm going to quote from one of those studies. Contemporary emerging adults are highly narcissistic, concerned only for their own advancement and investing little in causes beyond the self. The pervasive rhetoric of young adults' social engagement is seldom matched by lifestyles devoted to others flourishing, end quote. Don't go out like that. Let that not be you, please. By the way, that's one reason personal holiness is so important. We're to love God and to love our neighbor. The spiritual disciplines, they're not merely for your own private benefit. They are integral to shaping us to be the kind of people who serve others. Personal holiness and social action go together. Um, and there are plenty of opportunities to serve. I'll uh, mention Lindsay Son's office, talk to the chapel office. Um, it's a way to do spiritual battle against the forces that want to shape you into evangelical narcissists. Number five, getting close to the end, develop a theology of technology. Oh man, why am I bothering? I see you rolling your eyes at me. Nigerian Luddite strikes again. <laughs> Dr. Medwemi, resistance is futile. <laughs> what was I thinking, right? Here's the thing. The practices I've been commending will be impossible if you are slaves to your devices. I hate to break it to you, but your smartphone is part of the largest spiritual battle. And, um, and you guys know all this. I'm just going to say that um, these Instagram, RenRen, Tumblr, LinkedIn, they just promote narcissism is what the research shows. Um, you guys know all this. My point is the devil and his forces oppress us through our technological distractions. Technology is not an unmitigated evil, nor is it an unmitigated good. 
And that's what I mean when I say we need a practical theology of technology. Um, I also mentioned a theology of leisure, but I'll skip to the end. Covenant College. Here I'm thinking of student development and the chapel office. They're always planning ways to help you cultivate those dispositions, those virtues. But some of you despise those efforts. You see them as a hindrance, as oppressive. You think you know better. You know what's good for you. Student development should be prying into my life. This, as I said, this sometimes reflects moral individualism. And I think we're often confused on this point about what Covenant College is, about what we're trying to do here. Some of you like saying that Covenant College is not the church. We're an academic institution. And you use that to argue against contract and against things that cramp your style. You need to be careful. On one level, that is true. Covenant College is not the church. On another level, though, we need to remind ourselves that we're not just an academic institution. We're more than that. We're a churchly institution as well, one that shares many of the same goals as the church. We are a Christian college, not just any college. And that means we are an academic community structured around the gospel. We are following Christ together. So stop whining about student development, right? They are, they are the ones on the front lines of spiritual warfare. All right, I'm out of time. There are other things I wanted to say, but let me close. Covenant College, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day the angels in heaven will know that our school is not just an academic institution, but it is a Christian academic institution. Not just superficially Christian, but Christian all the way down. I have a dream that one day you all will graduate as Scots who are zealous for the gospel, committed to a long obedience in the same direction, filled with the Holy Spirit, growing in wisdom and maturity. Chaplain Lowe, I have a dream that one day mandatory chapel will no longer be necessary because all students will go to chapel of their own volition. Listen, listen, I need a few good men and women to join the resistance movement. I need people ready to fight the enemy, whatever it takes. The devil may rule this world, but there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God is on our side, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We are more than conquerors. Remember, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Amen.